And so now, Lord, we ask that you would um, accomplish your purposes and your will in our midst. We give you thanks for the end of this search. We give you thanks for clarity about the future. And Lord, we ask for your guidance as a parish as we embark on a new era and a new stage in our life together. Lord, our faith and our hope and all that we have is built upon you, our foundation. And so we look to you in hope. And so we ask now to Lord Jesus that you would guide our minds and our hearts, that as we study your word, your will and your purpose may be made manifest, um, your purpose for our lives individually. Thank you for um, the, the things that you've given each one of us um, today to do and this week to do. And we ask, Lord, that you would empower us with your grace, um, that we might love and serve others and love and serve you in your name. So we ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Who wants to tell us where we are? Where are we in the Gospel of John? What's been happening? Does anybody remember what we did last week? Thirteen. What? Yeah. Yep. We did. Yeah. We're now on to chapter thirteen after being in chapter twelve. Does anybody remember what happened in chapter twelve? Lazarus. That right. That's right. Lazarus was eleven, and then straight from there, John is so interesting because he has. He's the only one who tells us about Lazarus. The other three gospel writers don't have Lazarus in their gospels. And then we have Jesus going straight from Bethany, really, up into Jerusalem. And what happens on his way into Jerusalem, do you remember? We have a whole Sunday de- dedicated to remembering it. Yeah, that's right. The waving of the palms, Hosanna. And remember how we discovered that that was... They were claiming, they were saying, you're a king, you're our king, you are the long-awaited Messiah, come at last, welcome to Jerusalem, basically, have your way, do what you're going to do. And, um, and what does Jesus do when they start to acclaim him as king, but he picks out, he picks out his ride, and what kind of ride does he choose? A donkey. A donkey. And what does that tell them about what kind of king he is? Humble. He's humble, and he's also a man of peace not a man of war. He's not going to do what they expect him to do. And the expectation was, in that day and age, the expectation was that the Messiah would overthrow any foreign oppression, any rulers that had, um, that, had that would not allow um, Israel to be ruled by their own native kings. And so the idea was that he would throw off Rome as their overlords and oppressors and that they would be free at last for the first time since um, the Davidic kingdom and David's heirs had been on the throne in Jerusalem. So that, that was the hope that this son of David, great David's greater son, would reestablish the kingdom. And then the way they understood the bringing in of the Gentiles, and does anybody remember what that word Gentiles means? Greeks. And, and we're Gentiles. And unless you're Jew, a Jewish Christian, you're a Gentile who's been brought into the faith. And so any Gentile, you know, the belief throughout the prophets was that the Gentiles would come back in. This is actually in Haggai. That's why it's on my mind, so excuse me. But that the Gentiles would come back in um, and that they would bring tribute into Jerusalem. And what had happened during David and Solomon's reign was that as they conquered all these kingdoms around them and they became the superpower for a brief flash of, (laughs) of a moment in history, then they had all of the wealth and the riches of all of these different other peoples brought into Jerusalem, brought into the temple, and they were used to glorify the Lord. They were used in worship, essentially, or used to adorn the temple. Um, So you even see David bringing in these 50 gold shields, and later on when the temple's destroyed, um, the gold shields are taken by someone else. So the thought was 
the temple's going to be restored and all of this beautiful material wealth will be brought back in. But Jesus Jesus is not going to do that. They think he's going to do that, but he's not going to do that. As a man of peace, the inclusion of the Gentiles in um, and the bringing in of those who are not Jewish in with the Jews into a family of God, a new people of God, comes about through Jesus' death and resurrection and then his ascension. And at Pentecost, you see that Holy Spirit poured out in the languages of all the people in the Mediterranean basin um, are present. And so suddenly the good news about Jesus can go out to them and they can believe and be brought in to the people of faith. That that was a little bit of a big picture. Sorry to zoom out a little bit on that. but um, So he's a peaceful king. He's not going to be a king in the way that they expect him to be a king. And we're going to see that is one of the reasons for his death. Um, We do this to our leaders, and there's a word of caution in this, that when we idealize and our leaders, we tend to um, get very upset when they don't do what we want them to do. And so suddenly, if we've put someone on a pedestal, suddenly we can never look at them the same way again. And and we tend to, if we idealize someone, then if they make a mistake, suddenly they've fallen, and we have a hard time respecting them and um, looking to them. And um, when Jesus did not do what they wanted him to do, um, that's one of the what's one of the driving motivations on the part of the crowd towards the crucifixion. Um, they idealized him with their own lens of what ought to happen, and when it didn't happen, um, they said crucify him. So we're going to see that in the coming months. Um, but right now we're going to be remember what happened at the very end of chapter 12, where we were um, last week. We were looking at um, one one thing that we were looking at was. Um, Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he says, the hour has come. And remember, we talked about time and how the hour is the hour of Jesus' death. And now that the hour has come, that means that it's time for him to die. He knows that the the purpose for which he was born has now come about. And um, he says all these things in this public forum, and then he says, I'm going away. Believe now. Believe while you have the light, because the light is going away and he says this in 1235 walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light believe in the light that you may become sons of light a lot of times as a as a theater person as an actor as a director I think about not just what's said but how it's said and do you remember last year when we were looking at chapter 7 and 8 in John, that there's this sense in which Jesus is pleading with them almost. Believe. Believe in me. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just someone who can do these wonderful miracles and signs. They all point to something else. They all point to who I am, that I'm the Son of God the Father. And so he's almost pleading with them uh, to believe in him, begging them to believe in him because he knows what will happen if they don't believe. And so you see, I see this, this last moment in public in chapter 12, he's begging them to believe in him almost. He's uh, urging them strongly to believe in him. And then um, in verse 36, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He goes away. And this is actually in chapter 12. That's the last public discourse that we have in John's gospel. And so Jesus goes now to focus on building up those who do believe in him, 
and we see him going into um, chapter 13. We're now going into the upper room. And the funny thing about John's gospel is that he gives us a really extended picture of the upper room. I guess, I mean, prepare yourselves because we're going to be in the upper room till the summertime. <laughs> There's, well, really, I mean, there is. And perhaps beyond, I don't know. We'll see how fast we can go. But there's a lot of theological depth in everything that Jesus is saying. And what we're going to so that's chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. All five of those chapters happen in the same place. They happen in the upper room as Jesus is um, preparing the disciples for his departure, for his death, and then for his resurrection. They don't understand a lot of what he's saying, but he's but they remember it later on, and the Holy Spirit brings it back to their minds, and they begin to understand it in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, Mary. The question about this um, at the end of verse 12. Mm-hmm. He talks about um, in Isaiah that he blinded their eyes, hardened their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to what God did with the Pharaoh. Yes. Uh, and so is, is Christ acknowledging that God has hardened the heart of the Jews yeah. um, intentionally to lead to his death? Yeah. I mean, don't you think so? Seems kind of, um, this, this seems kind of a very sad section where Christ is realizing that there's nothing he can do. Yeah. I mean, he, it's almost like he's beating his head against a wall. Right. He said it. He said mm-hmm. it again. He's done all these amazing things. If they don't believe now, will they ever believe? And now he believes God has hardened their it, Yeah, and part of this, well, a couple things. You're right. Do you want to say something about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, just in case there's people here who might not remember what that refers to? Well, the plagues that God brought, and even though it's obvious Pharaoh should have made the decision to, to come around, he just, God hardened his heart so that he would not come around, so that all the miracles could be performed to show God's power and majesty. Right. Even to the point of killing Pharaoh's son. Mm-hmm. He threatened to kill his son, but God hardened his mm-hmm. And this is one of those chicken-and-the-egg conversations theologically. And it's one of those questions that we just have to grapple with as Christians. How do we, and it's basically, it's essentially the question of predestination versus, you know, free will versus election. Do we choose God or does God choose us? And so, again, I refer, to, I refer you to that sense of God's sovereignty um, in his knowledge of the end from the beginning. And John is very good about talking about that, um, that Jesus knows who will, you know, the Father knows who will believe in Jesus from the end, at the end of all time. He knows who, who believes and who doesn't believe. And in some ways, this hardening of hearts is not outside God's purpose. Well, that's another thing, but he knows from the end what will happen. And so how much is that active on his part or passive, allowing the hearts to be hardened? And it's a tough question. It's, it's something we have to grapple. Yeah, I I think, um, I don't know. In looking at this passage, this is John who's pointing out Isaiah. It's not Jesus. And so I don't know that Jesus is so surprised. I think he's disappointed, but I don't know that he's surprised. He says these things, and then he goes and he hides himself from them. And then John starts to talk 
in verse 37. John starts to say, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so what I understand that to be is that John, the evangelist, is commenting what's so great about the Gospels. It's not just historical. It's not just this is what happened, da, 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 da. But then you have the eyewitnesses writing the Gospel saying, this is what happened, this is what it means. So you have commentary written in with the actual description of events. So I would say that this is John commenting on why did some of the people of God, why did the people of faith not believe in Jesus if he really was the Messiah? So what he's answering is he's answering the question of how could Jesus be the Christ, the Messiah, if some of the Jews did not believe in him? And John's gospel is saying they didn't believe because it wasn't in God's will, that um, it's not outside God's sovereignty that all of the people of God did not believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? And you see Paul addressing this also in Romans. Well, what about the Jews? What about those who... Um, are the inheritors, the heirs of the promises of God. If the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus, then why don't the rightful heirs recognize it and claim their inheritance? And this is John's interpretation in saying, well, it's not because Jesus isn't the Christ, it's because their hearts were hardened. Does that make sense? Does that help understand? And it's the end that then Christ himself is speaking instead of John. At the end, yet when Jesus says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. Um, And he just goes on, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. And he's saying, I don't judge him right now. But Jesus is the judge who will one day judge each one of us. For I did not come this time to judge the world, but to save the world. Next time I'm coming to judge. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And here he's saying, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The testimony of Jesus, Jesus' own witness about who he is, um, will accuse those who don't believe in him. Um, And so, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this, in some ways, he has already hid himself from the crowds. So it might be that this this last passage in chapter 12, it might, we, we don't know because John doesn't say he said to Peter and James and John, and duh, 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 but it sounds as though that's more of an explanation on Jesus' part for his purpose in coming and why don't these other people believe in him. Does that make sense, Mary? Thank you for pointing that out and asking questions. I think this is this is the place to ask questions, right? If there's something that's not making sense, let's talk about it. In, in a formal Bible study somewhere, yeah. scribbling in my yes. Bible. Yeah. That's what I said. I, 44 through 50, I have written as a summary of Jesus' teaching. Yes. That's the, that, that's the whole summary. It's a good summary, yeah. You know how when you write papers for English class, you have the introductory paragraph, thesis statement, closing. Mm -hmm. And John will have another one of those at the end of the whole book where he says, I've written this, that you may believe in Jesus and that you may have life. So that idea of belief and life is really important. Um, And again, light and darkness is really important. We saw that at the beginning of John. That's one of his ways of understanding who Jesus is. Um, And judgment is also really an important theme in John. So you're right, it is a good summary. Anyone else before we move on to chapter 13? 
Now, on your outline, we've been doing context right now. I know that's tough. We're putting it all within the context of what we've already been learning and reading about um, so that when we read chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, which is our passage for today, we get a sense of where it falls within the context of everything else. Um, but so we're going to read it first, and then we're going to look at that one bullet point that I put on your outline, similarities to John 12, 1 through 8. So if you remember what that was, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Does anybody remember what incident that was? That's where they washed Jesus' feet. Who did? Do you remember who did? Mary or Martha. Mary. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> that was, that's right. And one that Mary Magdalene. No, it was Mary Bethany. But everybody, the church has mixed them up all along. Too Luke, many Marys. I got interested in that. And, and Luke, or Mark 1, well, first, she is the one that Jesus got the devils out of. I don't, as far as the woman who anoints his feet, I'm not sure that there, that connection is made. I know that the, the church historically, well, first of all, in one of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember we had that big chart and we graphed it out. One of them says that she's a sinful woman, or the others of them say yeah. that she's a yeah. sinful woman. But I don't think it anywhere says that it's the same sinful woman as the woman out of whom Jesus cast many demons, which is definitely Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, it says in Luke that Mary Magdalene had seven demons, and Jesus cast them out of her. Yeah. But it never says about her that she's a sinful woman. It's just that the early church didn't know what to do with all these women, and they sort of said, well, there are lots of Marys, and they started to conflate the different stories about the different Marys, and then also unnamed women. They didn't know what to do with that, and so they'd say, well, that must have been one of the named women. So the sinful woman often gets attributed to, so does also does another passage in John's Gospel, you know, the woman caught in adultery with the stones. Yeah. That woman is often thought to be Mary Magdalene, but it never says there that it was. And so the thought, if because Mary Magdalene was obviously known to the early church, my thinking on that is, if it was Mary Magdalene, so often they say, you know, Mary, Mary Magdalene, that was her on the ground. She almost got stoned. They often will say, the gospel writers will say, you know, Simon, Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross, that was that Simon that you know of. And the name, you know, um, that name is brought up in uh, the book of Romans. So he might have been a leader in the church in Rome, which is so interesting to see whenever there's a name in the gospels and they give you a name, it's really so my thinking on that is that they're probably separate and early church once they forgot who these people were they didn't know what to do once they forgot oh yeah Mary Kay I know Mary Kay then they started to conflate the different and put them together in their mind is that does that I hope that helps Matthew, Mark, just say a, woman. a woman yeah and it's Luke that says a sinner right yeah, yeah. thank you Jean for clarifying on that um, so let's read chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. I'll start out and read a couple of verses, and then as you feel led, um, go ahead and read, and um, read a couple of verses, and someone else will pick up where you leave off. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. washing their feet, and they put on his garment, and sat down with them. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his head, healed against me. I tell you this now, before it, take, it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone, anyone whom I send receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Any thoughts or things that you notice as you're reading? He who eats my bread with me has raised up his heel do you have do you have a little note? Does anybody have a study Bible with a little note about that passage? Those little letters are only for the very eagle-eyed to be able to look down and find what they're saying. Mine says, let's see. This is verse 18. Uh, yeah, 18. The end of verse 18. He who ate, he's quoting scripture. He, um, the scripture, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm pretty sure it's from the Psalms, but if we look in the little, yeah, and that's used, do you see what he's, who he's referring to? Judas. We're going to see next week what he, the only two actions that we have Jesus doing in chapter 13 in the upper room. It's so strange from the synoptic gospels. It's so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What we see Jesus doing, we see two actions, washing of feet, and then he takes bread and he gives it to Judas. And then Judas goes from that point on. And so it's almost, uh, you know, first of all, that Jesus is in control of what's happening. He's, this is not an accident, what's about to happen. But secondly, that, um, that this scripture about uh, this kind of trait, you know, treachery, this betrayal, it, it's in there in scripture. The psalmist knows this same kind of betrayal, that the one who's, 
eaten in his own house has um, let him down, betrayed him. And I don't know if you've ever had someone betray you on any level, but if they, you can only betray someone if you're close to them. You know, you can't really, it doesn't feel like a betrayal if it's not someone who's close to you. And it's interesting that that kind of idea is in scripture and that Jesus uses scripture in advance to understand it. That he's saying, this is, this is a part of scripture, this is a part of God's plan right now, as painful as it probably was to him. When you think about it, when we look at this washing of feet, Jesus, Judas doesn't go out to betray Jesus until after Jesus has washed his feet. Jesus serves him knowing what he's going to do. So let's look at that verb knowing. In the first, um, in the first few verses, chapter 13, just start with the verse, the first verse. And I'm looking in specifically at any time it says that Jesus knows. Do you, anyone see it and tell me what it is that he knows? The time is come. Okay. The time has come. What else? What verse is that? One. One. Okay, what else? And he, in verse three, he knows that the Father has put all things under his power, and that he has come from God and will return to God. I'm going to say his origin. He knows his origin from the Father. Say that whole thing again, if you don't mind, Barbara. Jesus knows that the Father has put all things under his power and that he has come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothes and wrapped a towel around his waist. I think that's interesting that he felt like he had to dress like a servant before he could uh, wash their feet. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. What do you think about that? That's a hum- humbling. Mm-hmm. He's very humbling. Um, I'm sort of doing two things at once. I, I realize we skipped chapter, we skipped the similarities between John 12, 1 through 8. Do you have any thoughts about, well, midstream let's keep looking at knowing and then we're going to go back and look at chapter 12 because there are a lot of similarities and Barbara you've hit on them right now just in his humility we're going to talk about what Jesus is what kind of humility (coughs) Jesus has but let's keep going after let's see you don't have to keep reading it all but as you read it silently to yourself just let us know if you find another place where it says in these um, 20 verses that Jesus knows something That, what, that's verse 11, right? Mm-hmm. Anything else? There, are there any other ones? Well, when he's, when he, um, in verse 6, when he's with Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus asked me, what I'm doing, you do not know now, mm-hmm. but afterwards you will understand. Yeah, that's true. So Peter doesn't know, and that's in contrast. And then Jesus asked him in verse 12, do you know what I've done to you? Mm-hmm. Is there any other place where it says that Jesus knows something? 
I know whom I have chosen. Yeah, what verse is that? Verse 18. about all of these things that Jesus knows. What did they tell you about what he's doing? Any thoughts about this? He knows, Jesus knows the time of his death. Jesus knows that um, he has authority. Um, and that's sort of the word I've chosen for how he knows that all things are under his power. Jesus knows his origin. He knows that he is from God. Jesus knows his destiny. He knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. He knows that he's going to return to God. He knows his betrayer. He knows who he can't trust. And yet he sees his betrayer's sin even before his betrayer commits it. And he loves him and he serves him. And he knows who it is that he's chosen. He knows the ones who won't betray him. He knows the ones who will follow him and build his church after his departure. He knows a lot, doesn't he? Like he, the, he knows the plan and everything's going Right, and what does that tell us as we're reading John? This is no accident. Whoops, Jesus died. No, this is purposeful, intentional. Um, Jesus is in control. Jesus is Lord. And that's so important when it comes to his death, when it comes to him being on trial at the hands of Pilate, when it comes to him being scourged and whipped, when it comes to him dying on a cross, he's not out of control. He is in control. He is Lord, and he is voluntarily submitting himself, going low and humbling himself so that he might be that atoning sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And so I've put this um, on your sheet, this, this knowledge is a part of Jesus' humility. Um, what does he do that is so humble? And that's what we can compare with John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. How is he similar to Mary of Bethany? How is what he does to the disciples here similar to what Mary has done to him? Washing. Yeah. Washing feet. Ew. Remember what we said about feet? Does anybody want to summarize what we said about feet a couple weeks ago? <laughs> yeah. Remember New York City? Joan, oh, was it? No, it was Shirley who was there. It wasn't as bad as when I lived there several years ago. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Maybe they've cleaned up. There is a, um, I know you didn't see this musical, and I don't even know if it's still running, but pardon my crassness, but it's the name of the musical. There was a musical called You're in Town, and I guarantee you it was sort of alluding to New York City. And, and I know, I'm sorry to even say that, but the New York City's paved, and the streets are, um, there aren't as many animals. There are just the domesticated cat, uh, dogs that people are walking everywhere. The ancient world, I mean, it was dusty. There, was, there were no paved roads. Everybody wore sandals because it was hot. Their feet were disgusting. And it was really the job of the lowest slave, the lowest servant in a household to wash the guest's feet or to wash anyone's feet. So much so that if it was a Jewish servant or slave, their master, the law said their master could not make them wash their feet. That was forbidden. That was, there was one thing, that was too far. They should not have to do that. Um, so Mary washes Jesus' feet. Is there anything else that's similar? I'm thinking about the time. I'm thinking about the 
dynamics of what's going on. At a meal, they were washed at a meal. Very good, that's right. It's at a meal, it's in the context of a meal. Supper. Is it the same people? Yeah, it is roughly the same people, isn't it, Jane? So the same people who'd seen Mary Bethany anoint Jesus' feet then see, see Jesus get up and um, he lays aside his garments. So he kind of makes himself vulnerable. He wears, um, he wears his, he, he strips down so he doesn't get his good clothes dirty, you know, and then he gets down. He probably had to get down on his hands and knees to wash people's feet. Um, he lays aside his garments. Um, he lays aside even the, the signs of respect as a teacher, and he gets down on his hands and feet, and he washes their um, feet, or hands and knees, and he washes their feet. And so when we look at this sort of natural humility, not natural, but the, the very clear, humble activity of anointing of feet, and when we look at that in light of what all that Jesus knows, what I'd like to say and just point out, and this is my point on your your outline that says Jesus is humility because his humility is a secure humility. Um, his submission and his going low, his humbling of himself is neither groveling nor does it come from a place of low self-esteem. I'm not a big fan of low self-esteem uh, or self-esteem talk because I think it's unhelpful. I think it's a modern way of understanding our souls and our spirits and our identity of self. There's a good, healthy um, sense of dignity, and that's more of a biblical term, looking at the dignity of every created being. And then there's also understanding who we are in light of the fallenness, the sin that came into the world in Eden, that we are, we are sinful. Um, and yet, as we believe in Jesus, we're redeemed. And there is, again, um, a dignity in that. So Jesus is not groveling. He knows who he is. He's not saying, I'm, he's not saying, um, I'm nothing. He's, he knows who he is. He knows where he comes from. He knows that he's the Father's beloved son. And I think of that, um, that passage in Philippians 2, verses um, 1 through 11, and that's a passage that Paul uses to exhort those in Philippi about how to behave towards one another. And he tells them to take their example from Jesus Christ um, so he says in verse 3, um, and you don't need to turn to it, I'll read it, but if you want to turn to it, it's Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knows where he comes from. He knows that he is one with the Father. He is the Son of God. And yet, even then, he humbles himself and takes everything that he has, which is great, and he gives it up for the sake of those he loves in order to bring those he loves 
back into um, relationship with the Father in order that those he loves would be um, saved and forgiven from their sins and brought into new life with Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which his submission is voluntary. It's not something that someone imposes on him. It's something that he voluntarily does and he gives of himself knowing all that is his because of his, because of his relationship with the Father. And so he gives out of that wealth of what's been given to him and what is his um, through the Father. Any thoughts about that? Well, I see some furred grouse. Right? I mean, it's right there. It's just, just, yeah. I'm, he was so, he is just so sure of himself. Mm-hmm. And that sh- should make the disciples be respectful. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think they are. Um, I think we, we see, um, he knows what time it is. It's time to die. He knows that he has um, all authority over heaven and earth. He knows that he's from God. He knows that he's going back to God. He knows who will betray him, and yet he loves and serves him. And he knows um, who will build his church. And he loves and he serves them. And he serves them not only by this act of service, of washing their feet, but the act of washing their feet is a parable about what he is about to do on the cross. Um, and we'll look at Peter's response to that. I've got to move along a little bit more closely, uh, quickly, but I just want to say that um, the... I talk about this humility coming from a place of fullness because I think often when we serve in the church, and I'll get back to this in a little bit, when we look um, at Jesus and Peter interacting together about this washing of the feet, how many of us serve in some capacity in the church? You don't have to raise your hand, but it's all of us, altar guilds, um, serving at breakfast, teaching, Sunday school, doing this or doing that, and there are ways in which we serve each other, and I think very often um, we serve because we think we should or because um, out of a place that comes from a place of lack where we think, um, well, um, and there is a sense of true humility in that. Well, yes, I'm a servant in identifying ourselves as servants, but there's also a way in which we sometimes um, overshoot that and serve from a place of pride. Well, I can put on my resume that I've been on this guild and done this and I've done this and I've checked off the boxes and now it's all good. I did my service to the church and I'm done. Um, and I don't know, do you, do you experience that in service um, around the church or in serving other people in your families? No? Good for you. I think that sometimes there's this sense that, well, I have to do this, so I'm going to do it. Or a good person does this, so I'm going to do it. I recognize it in other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem, I think perhaps the problem is we don't know necessarily that we're doing it when we do it. I think we can serve out of a sense of duty. Yeah. I think we can serve out of a sense of, um, I want to be needed. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think there we can have, a, and we can have real mixed motivations. Oh, absolutely. And I would even say and our motivations. Yeah, it can. And I think our motivations are always mixed. Honestly, yeah. I actually think that's part yeah. of being fallen human beings. That are our motives ever wholly pure? No. But does that keep us from doing stuff? No. <laughs> that should not paralyze. It can, but we shouldn't let it paralyze yeah. us into not doing something good just because we know we're doing it for selfish reasons. Um, but there is a sense in which we have this um, pride about service 
that, well, I'll, I'll serve in the kitchen. Don't, don't worry about, I don't need to be up front. I just want to serve in the kitchen. I want to hide, but I also want to feel good about myself. Um, and so once we start to dig around at our motivations, it's interesting to see what we'll find. But Jesus here serves out of his fullness, out of the fullness of the knowledge of who he is. And this is what I'm suggesting to you all, is that when we serve, we ought to serve out of the fullness of who we are in Jesus Christ. And the only way we can know the fullness of who we are in Jesus Christ is allowing him to serve us. And that's exactly what happens with Peter. He gets to Peter, and what does Peter say? Not me. Mm-mm, mm-mm. It's harder to let someone serve you than to serve, isn't it? No, no, don't bring me a meal. I don't need a meal. Let me cook you a meal. No, I'm just fine. Thanks very much. What do you need? How can I pray for you? Oh, don't pray for me. Everything's good. There's this desire to deflect attention from ourselves by, um, by helping, by serving, by being active. And yet in that place where we allow Jesus to serve us, if we, like Peter, say, um, re- you know, re- say, no, Jesus, don't serve me, Jesus has to serve us. Unless, and what is Jesus' response to Peter's resistance? What does he say to him? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. If Jesus does not serve Peter, Peter doesn't get to say that he belongs to Jesus. What do you think that means when we talk about washing? What does that washing mean? What does it signify? Need. Yeah. Do we need Jesus? Are we just fine? Do we need him to wash us? This washing of feet, this service, is, um, is symbolic of what he's about to do when he goes to die on the cross. Um, there is this pride within us that might say, no, that's all fine, Jesus. I, you know, I don't need so much forgiveness, just maybe a little bit of forgiveness, and I'll get by. <laughs> I'm not a sinner. I'm just almost a sinner. I'm, <laughs> I'm really close. It's, it's bad, but it's not that bad. <laughs> um, Yeah, there is definitely this sense of washing. Washing is a very important part in the rituals of Judaism, in their cultic rituals of worship. Mm-hmm. And it was a part of being of entering into the faith. You washed. There was a baptism before you entered the Jewish faith. If you were a woman, that's all you had to do was believe and wash. If you're a man, that was another story. And that's why you have a lot more Gentile women becoming Jews than um, Gentile men becoming Jews. And I won't go there. It's very graphic. You can imagine. If the covenant people are all, yeah. Um, circumcised uh, through the covenant of Abraham. If you're an adult male, that's let more of a deterrent. If you're an adult woman, hey, sure, I'll, I'll take baptism and then I can become a part of the people of God. And But the sense of washing is important in Judaism as a sense of belonging. And so the washing that Jesus is talking about um, is um, something that there's, um, how many of our gospel hymns are about washing and washing in Jesus' blood? Can you think of some have you been, wait, have you been to the, who knows that phrase? The fountain, the fountain that flows with Jesus' Yeah, yeah, have you washed? I know, I'm trying to think. If I have it, I do have it on my phone. I won't. I, you can come by afterwards and I'll play it for you if you want. But there is this great musical that I was a part of when I was in college and it was called Smoke on the Mountain. It was all gospel music and it was kind of tongue in cheek. 
and yet it was real, and my friends were such good actors. I wasn't in the show, I was the master carpenter, but I got to hear them all sing this. I was, that's another story for another time. But they, um, they were singing so well with the, all of their hearts. They were really good actors, and they were singing this truth about being washed in the blood of Jesus. And I just remember being so moved by it. It was theater, it was not like the worship time that we had in chapel, and yet it moved me much more than that because the words were right there about being washed in Jesus' blood. And there's this phrase, too, in the book of Revelation, and it says in the book of Revelation, John is asking, who are the saints? Who are those in the white robes? And, and, and the, the angel says to him, those are the ones whose robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And I remember translating that verse early on in seminary and saying, robes washed white in the blood of the lamb that doesn't make any sense how i mean anybody who's ever done any laundry knows that that's impossible i mean that it, maybe it was written by a man who never did any laundry but it's powerful it's powerful to think about our souls washed clean in jesus's blood they're washed white in the red blood of the lamb and so we are wholly clean if we allow Jesus to wash us. And that is what he says to, um, he says that to Peter. Um, and one of my favorite commentators says, those who are humble enough to receive what Jesus in his humility is ready to do for them, those, in other words, who are willing to accept the cleansing which Jesus' own submission to death makes available to them, are wholly clean. judgment in a sense to say I'm weak and to receive that and say yeah I'm weak I need help um, and yet that is the place that is the that is the starting point of all true Christian faith and it's not just the starting point it's the returning point that's why we return to our knees why we confess every week and we say we need you God we need you we're lost without you we need you there's this great image. I'm going to go just a little bit over, but feel free to leave if you need to. There's this great image in C.S. Lewis's um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and there's this one character who takes on, and forgive me if you've heard this a billion times, but it's so evocative for me. There's this one character who's this nasty little boy, and he's always complaining, and he gets seasick on the boat, and he's just, the, they use the British word that I love, beastly. He's beastly. He's beastly, and he's awful to the other children. He's awful to the Narnians on the boat. And then um, he gets on this one island, and he finds this cave full of all of these beautiful jewels and gold. And he takes this gold bracelet, and he sticks it on his wrist. And then he finds that he has entered. He finds out afterwards what happens is he's turned into a beast. He's turned into a dragon because he walked into a dragon's cave. And suddenly he became, the, I don't know, doesn't say in particular, but his greed perhaps turned him into a dragon. And from that point on, in the midst of his suffering and his um, difficulty, 
he begins to see what a beast he's been because all he wants to do is be, be around the people he's been beastly to. And as a big old dragon, he can't. So he has this time of real suffering. And in that time of suffering, he begins to see what he's been like. And he begins to repent and want to be different. He wants to change. He doesn't want to be a beast anymore. And um, there's this, he, he's not sure if he dreams it or if it really happens. But you find out, no, it really happens. He goes in the middle of the night, Aslan, who's the Jesus figure in the story, comes to him and says, come along with, basically, come along with me. And he comes along with him, and he goes to this pool. And in the, at the pool, um, uh, Aslan says to him, wash, wash, you know, get in the pool and start, and, and get clean. And, and he says, okay, and I, but I've got to take this stuff off first. So he scratches at the dragon skin, and he tries to um, get the dragon skin off of him so he can wash in the lovely water. And he gets one skin off, and then he's still a dragon, and he keeps scratching, and he gets another skin off, just like a snake or a <coughs> serpent. And finally, once he's given up on trying to get himself wa- you know, ready to get washed, Aslan takes his claws, takes his big lion paw, and he slashes his dragon skin. And it, it's painful hurts a little bit, um, and yet that dragon skin, that tough dragon, it's almost like a dragon suit, just comes off. He's, it's off because Aslan has um, swiped him with his own claws, and then he can wash. But it's only through the action of Aslan that he's able to change and be a different kind of little boy, no longer a beastly boy. Still beastly, but not uh, not wanting to be beastly, at least at this point. And so there is in that image that of Aslan has to wash him. It's Aslan's action that brings about the transformation in him. And it is true for us as well that it is Jesus' action on our behalf when he goes to the cross that essentially scratches off that dragon skin of our beastliness. And there's still some beastliness there, but it's from that clean, new skin place of allowing Jesus to wash us, having been washed and cleansed in him, that we then are full. We are then um, secure in our own identity, secure as a beloved child of God, even though we also know that we have been a child of wrath. We're humbled. We're honest with ourselves. We've allowed Jesus to serve us, and it's from that place that we can then serve other people without expecting um, kudos for it, without expecting recognition, without expecting all the things that our little beastliness and sometimes our beastly selves want to receive as a result of service. So um, let's pray, and then you can go or stay if you have questions to ask. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to wash us from all sin by going to the cross. Thank you for your humble service. We ask, Lord, that even as we try to serve others, we ask, Lord, that you would give us that humility of knowing who we are in you, of knowing our need for you, and then finding you mighty to save. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are mighty to save that you have served us, and through your service, um, you have brought us to new life. Um, You've brought us forgiveness of sins. You have um, passed over us in judgment, that we're not judged, but rather forgiven. So we thank you for that, and we ask, Lord, continue to strengthen and empower us as we go out, as we serve, um, that we would serve in your name and knowing our need for you. So we ask all of this for your glory and in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.